Good morning. I have a cold. Kathy mentioned to me this morning that I always have a cold when I preach. And I asked her if she thought there was some sort of a connection, like I was allergic to it. And I offered her an uh, alternative explanation that I just preach in the wintertime when it's... So if I have to jump away from the microphone, you'll understand why. This week and next, I'd like to speak to you about biblical fasting. Now, why in the world would I want to go and do a thing like that? Uh, the reason is that when I first became a Christian, all the way back when I was 18 years old, almost every explanation that I was ever given with regard to fasting left me saying, wait, what? Can that be true? Theologically, biblically, it was a pain in my neck. As I've heard it expressed here lately, almost all of the various explanations I heard about fasting amounted to a small pebble in my shoe. And for years I was limping around, too lazy to sit down, take my shoe off, and knock the daggone thing out of my boot. I just limped around for years. Well, years ago, as I was reading through the Bible, I began to record in one of the notebooks I keep all the instances of fasting that are mentioned in the Bible, and alongside of it, I would make a note as to what the context implied fasting was for. And as that list became longer and longer and the picture became more and more clear, I finally got to the point where I said to myself, all right, just, just do this thing already. So systematically, I studied every passage in the Bible with the words fasts, fasting, fasted, uh, where they occurred, which in the English translations occur, uh, amounts to about 121 occurrences. Now, right off the bat, you can eliminate those occurrences where the English word is used for expressions like to go fast, or to hold fast, or to stand fast, or to be fast asleep, which are different words in the Greek and Hebrew anyway, so they don't count. That narrows it down to 42 passages which have to do with a person deliberately denying himself or herself food. The Hebrew words ana, tesom, tesum, and havath, and the Greek words nestuo and nestia are the only words which, which signify the voluntary withholding of food from yourself. And I studied the context of those 42 passages and arrived at the conclusions that I'd like to share with you this morning and next week. Now, for full disclosure, what I'm going to review with you is what I would call, what I would call, an original study, in the sense that I've not read one book on fasting, not one. So all the conclusions that I'm going to draw and share with you are my own, which means that if I screwed it up, it's all my own fault. Okay? I've got no one to blame but myself. This week, I'd like to discuss with you the four things that biblical fasting is not, and the one thing that I think biblical fasting is. And next week, I'll attempt to prove it to you. that sound fair? All right, so let's go. First, fasting is not the means by which, by which a Christian acquires spiritual power and authority. Fasting is not the means by which a Christian acquires spiritual power and authority. Now, I do not in any way blame the average believer for thinking such a thing due to the fact that the Bible plainly says that. Right there in the New Testament, black and white, plain as print. 
I know that you already know where I'm going with this. You are advanced as far as Bible students are concerned. You'll know that I'm going to Mark chapter 9, verse 29. In Mark 9, Jesus had taken Peter, James, and John up on a hill where they witnessed his transfiguration when Moses and Elijah made an appearance. And having come down from the mountain, Jesus rejoins his other disciples only to discover that they're in the middle of a big argument in a crowd uh, with some Pharisees. Evidently, some guy had brought to them his demon-possessed son, and they couldn't cast the thing out of the kid. And Jesus, mildly annoyed with his disciples' lack of faith, casts the thing out and then retreats into a nearby home with his disciples. And when he's in the house, his disciples ask him, why couldn't we cast that thing out? And this is his reply, and I am reading to you, quoting from the King James Version. It says, This kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. So there it is, black and white. People are reading that, and that's what they think. So what do we do about that? Like I said, I don't blame the average churchgoer for believing that fasting is the means of acquiring spiritual power and authority because they're reading it as it says. I do have to blame pastors and teachers and many of the silly people who write books about this topic because they should know better. I mean, you know better, right? With just the tiniest bit of research, they would know that in the earliest manuscripts, and therefore the most reliable manuscripts, the words and fasting do not occur there. Uh, you know, of course, that prior to the invention of the printing press, all copies of the Bible were made by hand. That's why we call them manuscripts from the Latin word manuscriptus, right? Written by hand, okay? Uh, very likely, several centuries after Mark wrote his gospel in Greek, some monk, uh, for whom fasting was a dreadful part of his monkish life, <laughs> wanted to emphasize the importance of fasting. So all on his own, he inserted the words and fasting into the text of Mark 9.29. That is not good. That is not a good thing to do, uh, especially considering the admonition found in Revelations 22.18. That is not a good move. There are, however, some people in this world who cannot do a thing without wanting everybody else to do it. Have you ever met someone like that? If they can't drink, neither can you. If, you, if they can't smoke, neither can you. If they have to fast, you have to fast also. I'm, I think, I can't remember where, somewhere C.S. Lewis, in one of his books, mentions that those are the kind of guys who are the worst sorts of people. Does that ring a bell to those C.S. Lewis fans out there? Now, having inserted the words and fasting in his copy, all the copies that were thereafter made from his copy contain the words and fasting. And there you go. It's all over the place. People being led to believe that fasting is the means by which Christians acquire power and authority. Uh, but the words and fasting do not appear. It's a gloss. And all the best modern translations of the New Testament do not include those words. Uh, the Nestle All in Greek New Testament from 1963 does not have it in it. The NASB, which is my favorite English translation, leaves the words out, uh, but puts in a little footnote uh, that in some manuscripts the words and fasting occur. And so it is with the NIV, the RSV, the English Standard Version. I mean, all the good ones, leave it out. There are, however, many translations that persist in keeping those words in it. And in doing so, they perpetuate this error. 
and that includes the King James Version, which I just read, the new King James Version, I mean, for crying out loud, they had a chance to fix it, and they didn't fix it. What is that? The Holman Christian Standard Bible, the Dewey Reams Bible, the International Standard Version, the New Heart English Bible, and the list goes on. I mean, all these versions include the words and fasting. So you can imagine why the average layman might think that this is the means by which a Christian acquires spiritual power and authority, because they're reading it. But it's not true. Those words were a gloss. How does a Christian acquire spiritual power and authority? Through prayer, period, end of sentence, right? Secondly, fasting is not a means of expressing sincerity to God. The idea here is that fasting is the means by which you demonstrate to God that you really mean it. This is not just some frivolous request that you're making, but it comes straight from your heart, sincerely. This is what I thought about fasting when I first became a Christian, 18, 19, 20 years old. I was an idiot. I didn't have anybody to tell me differently. I didn't, have, I didn't attend a church like this. I heard all the nonsense that all the other people were hearing, and it didn't make any sense to me, but what else can you do? I, that's what I believe. I was told that. I distinctly remember fasting for an entire week in order to get a job before Kathy and I were married. When I was 19 and had been a Christian for about a year and a half, I transferred from Delaware University to Fort Wayne Bible College because I wanted to become a pastor. Big mistake. That's, we'll leave that alone. <laughs> but again, I had nobody to tell me differently. I had no counselors that gave me any advice worth anything. As I pulled away from the curb in Delaware in the U-Haul van, I distinctly seen Kathy there standing by the, by, on the sidewalk in tears, and I shouted out to her, I'll see you in seven years when I get my doctorate. I said that. Well, that lasted for about a month. <laughs> you see, Kathy and I had been together since we were 15 years old. I had asked her to marry me when I was 16, and she said yes. And being away from her quickly uh, showed itself to be untenable. I mean, I just couldn't stand being away from her. I mean, when, when you have a girl like that, who can? I mean, there just aren't very many girls like her out there. She is as beautiful on the inside as she is on the outside. And on the outside, she's gorgeous. I mean, you don't have to take my word for it, she's right back there. Take, turn around, take a look. After a month of being separated from her, I said, look, we've got to get married now. And to my amazement, she said yes. Uh, I was amazed because that was back in the 70s during the Carter Depression. I would call it a depression. During the Carter Depression, when you couldn't get a job to save your life. Most of you aren't old enough to remember that. Those of you who are uh, don't remember it fondly. It was miserable, absolutely miserable. Uh, the interest rates, just to give you an idea, the interest rates were over 20%. Could you imagine buying a car with an interest rate of 20%, let alone a home, 
having a mortgage, the prime was 21%. I mean, the, the economy was at a standstill. I was very fortunate to get a job part-time, a very part-time job, stocking shelves at some retail store. And if I saved every penny, I had just enough money to pay my share of the rent, I shared an apartment with two other guys, and enough money to eat one meal every other day. Okay? I went from my football playing weight of 220 down to 190. I know that's hard to imagine looking at me now, but that's, <laughs> that was the case. I was starving to death. And knowing all of that, Kathy said, yes. I have no idea how her father refrained from shooting me. <laughs> Had I been her father, I'd have driven out here and shot me. <laughs> I have no explanation for why Kathy said yes, other than the fact that I'm convinced that when a girl falls in love, her brain falls out. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? So it's March. Two months to go, and I'm going to be married in May. Two months, still don't have a job. Just then I see this notice for a job on the college bulletin board for a counselor at some children's home. And I applied for it, and I wanted it so bad that after the interview, I prayed and fasted for a week. I mean, I had to have this thing. I meant it. I'm trying to tell God I mean this, right? Uh, well, I got the job. And immediately after Kathy came here, after we were married, she got a job at the exact same place, on the same days, on the same shift, which all served to reinforce the cockamamie idea that that was what fasting is for, that fasting is a means by which you convince God that you really mean this, you're sincere about this request. But that's not so. There's nothing in Scripture that supports such a notion. Fasting is not the means by which you convince God that you're really, truly sincere. Thirdly, fasting is not the means by which we overcome divine reluctance. Fasting is not the means by which we overcome divine reluctance. Somehow fasting has come to be understood by many to put God in some sort of spiritual full Nelson. I mean, forcing him to comply. As if fasting were the equivalent of saying abracadabra. As if fasting were the means by which you had the genie, he had to grant you your wish. There was no, he had no, no choice but to do what you ask. This is the view held by Christians who make a sport of misunderstanding everything in the Bible. The idea is that when a believer fasts, God is somehow bound to answer the prayer in the affirmative. I mean, there are books out there claiming that if you follow their formula of prayer and fasting, that God has no choice but to answer your prayer. You have to just do these things. Can you believe such a thing? Denny, am I exaggerating? It's, it's astonishing, absolutely astonishing. Few things can be screwier than that thought. To believe that, you have to ignore everything the Bible tells you about God. You have to ignore it to believe that. Now, I've shared this principle with you before, and I'll share it with you again here because it's really very important. It's something that you guys have got to learn to do yourself. In Matthew 7, 9 to 11, toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, and I quote, What man is there among you when his son asks for a loaf will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, 
He will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Do you hear what this means? Do you feel it? What we have in this passage is permission from Jesus himself to extrapolate. We have permission to draw conclusions about our relationship with God based upon a child's relationship with his or her parents. Do you see this? Now, I know that bad parents screw up the paradigm, but that doesn't negate the principle. More than permission, we are expected to do it. I mean, if you look at it carefully, Jesus is almost a little disappointed that his hearers weren't doing that themselves. I mean, after all, it's not for nothing that Jesus instructed his followers to call God what? Father. When asked how we should pray, Jesus did not instruct us to address God as the almighty potentate. He did not instruct us to address God as the great architect of the universe. He told us to address God as Father. And Jesus intends for us to draw conclusions from that. Now also, in conjunction with that, what we must never forget is that God is a person. I cannot begin to enumerate for you how many misconceptions about God and about prayer and about our relationship with God stem from the fact that people ignore the fact or have forgotten the fact that God is a person. The Bible clearly tells us that God is a person. He's not a thing. He's not a force. He's not a power. He's not an institution. He's a person. By that I mean that God is an individual being with a name. I mean, he told us what his name is, right? He's, he's self-conscious. He has a will. He's capable of feeling and choosing. He's capable of having reciprocal relationships with other personal and social beings, and more. God is an all-loving, all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful person. Kind of like mothers. <laughs> now, imagine, if you will, you're a young mother with your young family. There you are, standing in front of the stove, on a Sunday afternoon, cooking dinner, and your eldest son, Frankie, who is a precocious 11-year-old, comes up to you and says, Ma, and without looking at him, you say, what is it, honey? And he says, Ma, can I have candy? And you look down at him and you say, can you see what I'm doing here, Frankie? Frankie, do you know what this is called? I want to hear you say, what I'm doing, Frankie. Frankie says, you're cooking dinner. And she says, that's right. You say, yeah, that's right, I'm cooking dinner. So of course you can't have candy now, Frankie. We're eating in three minutes. Go wash your hands and go call everybody else to the dinner. Go, go do it now. But Frankie doesn't go and doesn't do it now. Frankie, who is an excellent Sunday school student, remembers that two weeks ago, his teacher, Mrs. Crabtree, taught him that boldness is the key to answered prayer. You see, she explained to him the meaning of the parable of the midnight visitor. You remember that one in Luke 11, where some visitor shows up unannounced in the middle of the night, 
and his host has to go frantically from door to door asking his reluctant neighbors for bread in order to feed them. Mrs. Crabtree taught Frankie that when dealing with a reluctant supreme being, boldness is the key to getting what you want. So Frankie, being a good little Christian, boldly tries again. And tugging at your apron one more time, he says, Ma, what is it now? Ma, can I have candy? And you say to him, Frankie, what did I tell you? Is there something wrong with you? Are your ears not working today? I told you clearly 10 minutes ago that you cannot, no, a minute ago, that you cannot have candy because we're eating in 10 minutes. Now, I want you to go wash your hands because we're all going to eat dinner in, five, in a couple of seconds. Go do what I told you. Go do it right now. Right now. Go. But Frankie doesn't go. He doesn't go because Frankie is not merely a hearer of the word. He is a doer of the word. <laughs> and he remembers one week ago that Mrs. Crabtree taught him the meaning of the parable of the unjust judge in Luke 18. That's the one where the old woman who needs justice keeps bugging the corrupt judge for it, persistently bothering him until she, he finally gets it from her. He, he, she finally gets it from him. Mrs. Crabtree taught Frankie that boldness and persistence were the keys to getting what you want from a supreme being. So here it goes. Frankie says, third time, Ma, what? Ma, can I have candy? Now, this is where the spoon of righteousness and justice <laughs> makes its appearance. You hold that wooden spoon right there so that he can see it. And through clenched teeth, you say to him, Frankie, if, if you say the word candy to me one more time, not only will you not get candy today, but you will not eat another piece of candy for the rest of your short, miserable life. <laughs> As a matter of fact, Frankie, for the rest of the day, if you even say to me a word that begins with the letter C, I will beat you with this spoon until you can't sit down for a week. Do you hear me? Now you go do what I told you to do now, right now, right now. Now at that, Frankie does take a step back. I mean, who wouldn't? But again, he stops. You see, this sort of resistance from all powerful beings is to be expected. And he remembers that he was taught that very morning by his substitute teacher, Mr. Mr. Kneecapper. Mr. Kneecapper taught Frankie that when you want something from God, you pray for it. When you really want something from God, you pray for it really, really hard. But when you really, really, really want something from God, you pray and fast for it. Frankie was taught that prayer, when combined with fasting, somehow mysteriously pushes past the divine reluctance. He was taught that fasting in some inexplicable, miraculous way, not yet fully understood, overcomes divine resistance. And how else could Mr. Kneecapper say it? It somehow obligates God to answer your prayer in the affirmative. He doesn't know how it works, but it just does. He knows it. So Frankie swallows hard, takes a deep breath, and steps forward one more time. I mean, give the kids some credit, right? 
with a prayer on his lips and faith in his heart, he tugs on your apron string one more time. Ma, what? <laughs> Ma, I'm not eating anything until I get candy. Now, at that moment, <laughs> Frankie did get something. <laughs> How many of you think it was candy? <laughs> you see, Jesus said, and I'm paraphrasing here, if you then, being evil, know how to raise your own kids, what makes you think that your heavenly father doesn't know how to raise you as his son or daughter? When we lose sight of the fact that God is a person, everything, everything, everything goes kablooey. How else can we explain the notion that's gotten into so many believers' heads that we could do anything that would force God's hand, that we, would that we could do anything that would obligate him to give us what we want, that would force him to comply with our desires. God is a person, an all-loving, all-knowing, all-wise person who doesn't change his mind about giving you something or not giving you something because you've chosen to refrain from food. We wouldn't do that as sinful parents. What in the world ever made us think that that's the way it works with him? When viewed in the light of God being a person, virtually every problem that Christians have with prayer instantly disappears, including the silly notion that prayer and fasting somehow obligates God to give you what you want, that it overcomes the divine reluctance. It does not. Fourthly, and this one may be hard to hear, Fasting does not serve as a reminder to prayer. Fasting does not serve as a reminder to prayer. Of all the wrong ideas about fasting, this one is the best and the most reasonable. But in my opinion, it's still not the biblical reason why people fast, why believers fast, rather. The idea is that when an important need arises within a fellowship, say someone is critically ill, all the believers in that fellowship are asked to pray and fast. The explanation given is that when fasting, you'll become hungry, and whenever you become hungry, it reminds you to pray. So having skipped breakfast, your stomach gurgles at 10 a.m., and you say, ah, oh, I've got to pray for this guy. At 11 a.m., you're thinking, man, I am getting really hungry. And again, you're reminded to pray. At lunchtime, someone pops their head into your room and says, let's go grab a bite, and you say, I can't, and you spend the lunch hour in prayer. And on it goes. Instead of eating, you pray. Whenever you're hungry, it reminds you to pray. Now, as I said, that sounds good. That sounds very reasonable. And it is not wrong. But neither is it right. You see, you no more fast in order to feel hungry than you get your hair cut to have shorter hair. Feeling hungry is a natural consequence of not eating. But that's not the reason you do it. Having shorter hair is the natural consequence of having it cut. But it's not the reason you have it cut. The reason a person gets his hair cut is because his wife tells him that he's starting to look like an animal. <laughs> the reason a person gets his hair cut is because his wife tells him that she's ashamed to be seen with him in public. The reason a person gets his hair cut 
is because his wife says that when he's sleeping, she's going to go for him with the scissors. <laughs> That's the reason why, I, why a person gets his hair cut. And the same goes for fasting. The reason we fast is not to feel hungry, even if it is to remind us to pray. More than that, simply, there is nothing in the Bible that suggests, even remotely, that the purpose for prayer is to remind us to pray. There is no biblical support for such an explanation. So, if fasting is not the means by which Christians acquire spiritual power and authority, if fasting is not the means by which we convince God that we're really sincere about our requests, if fasting is not the means by which we can somehow push through the divine reluctance and obligate God to answer our prayers, if fasting is not the means by which we're reminded to pray, then what in the world is it? The puzzle we can assemble when putting together all the pieces that we find in the Bible suggests to us that fasting is a natural expression of mourning. Fasting is a natural manifestation of grief. Fasting is a natural expression of profound contrition. Fasting is a natural expression of humility. All of those things, as you'll see next week, are very closely related. Okay? That's why I said that it's not these four things, it's one thing, and I've just given you four words. All of those words are so closely related, I group them into one thing. Okay? Fasting is a natural expression of mourning, grief, profound contrition, and humility. <coughs> Edwin Yamamuchi notes in his commentary on Nehemiah that, and I quote, the Sabbath was sanctified not just by the negative cessation of ordinary labor, but by a consecration of that day to joyous gatherings. Fasting and mourning were not to be observed on the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath was a time of gladness. So obviously you would never fast because fasting is awful, right? Nobody likes it. If you like it, there's something wrong with you. And you do not fast at a feast, right? Fasting is an expression of mourning. The Book of Jubilees, which belongs to the pseudepigraphical group of writings, is, of course, not canonical. It's not authoritative. But it is, nevertheless, of historical significance. And in that book, chapter 50, verse 12, we read that anyone who fasts on a Sabbath will be put to death. Isn't that interesting? Anyone who fasts on a Sabbath will be put to death. In other words, no mourning on the day of celebration. In like fashion, the book of Judith, which is part of the Apocrypha, which is accepted by the Roman Catholics as canonical, tells us in chapter 8, verse 6, that Judith, and again I quote, fasted all the days of her widowhood, except Sabbath eves and Sabbaths, new moon eves and new moon, feast days and holidays of the house of Israel. Again, fasting is an expression of mourning and is out of place on feasts and Sabbaths and days of celebration because it expresses mourning, the opposite of gladness. More than that, consider this. Fasting is not so much something that you do as it is something that happens to you. Think about that for a minute. When you find yourself overwhelmed with mourning, when you are overcome with grief, 
when you are in tears over a sense of profound contrition, what is the first thing that happens to you? What is it that you naturally lose? Your appetite. That's why I call it a natural expression of mourning. One goes hand in hand with the other. It's not so much something you do as something that happens to you. You would do it anyway. It's a natural expression of those emotions. Now, I'll close with this. Allow me to read you something. Years ago, when we as a fellowship were directed to pray and fast for a brother who was seriously ill, the elders distributed an instruction sheet which contained these words. And again, I quote, Fasting is not to be seen as a tool to manipulate God. In the Bible, it is viewed as an expression of humble dependence upon him. That is absolutely, perfectly right on the money. Right on the money. So I ask you, isn't it wonderful to go to a church where you can simply all breathe out? Isn't it? What I mean by that is, Far too many people go to churches where they have to hold their breath in anticipation of the next stupid thing they're going to hear. <laughs> we could just relax and breathe. Now, the elders can't say that. If they said that, they'd be accused of sinful pride. If they said that, they'd be accused of bragging. If they said that, they'd be accused of being puffed up, of being elitists. They can't say that, but I can. I'm not an elder. I'll say what I want. <laughs> and what I want to say is this. Isn't it wonderful to be part of a church that gets so many things right? Isn't it? Now, I've told you this week what I believe fasting is not and what it is. Next week, I hope to prove it to you. So what I want you to do is to remember, remember to bring a pencil or a pen next week. That's all you got to do. You don't have to read anything. You don't have to study anything. Just bring something to write with. Can you remember that? Okay, I'm going to give you a handout sheet on which you'll make just simple marks. You don't even write words, just marks. Can't get easier than this. I have no faith in you to do anything more than that. Okay? <laughs> just make a little mark. All right? And I'm done. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, thank you, Ted. We're looking forward to part two. Um, Ted told me that his subject was fasting. I, I, my first response was, I, I hope that you can find a case against it because I hate fasting. <laughs> <clears throat> um, my history is similar, similar to his in the sense that, <clears throat> excuse me, after I became a Christian, I fasted often for lots of things and all for the wrong reasons. And um, it was just interesting to hear him talk about that as well. So we have more to learn on this subject. We're looking forward to it. And um, it'll be, it's good stuff what we heard this morning. It'll be good stuff next week as well. So let's stand and I will dismiss you with this short benediction and then you'll, you'll be dismissed. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. Go in Christ's name, enjoy each other, and serve each other in love. You are dismissed.